So first of all, uh, thanks for doing this for me. Uh, Zevi, oh. should I call you Rabbi Zevi? Are you, are you no, no, no. <laughs> um, just Zevi is, is more than, more than enough. Okay, cool, man. So yeah, I, I really like the message of your videos and your whole platform. Um, and I think we have like, you know, some kind of similarity in what we're trying to do. And that similarity is just, a you know, unity and unification of, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll back it up a little bit. I, I see, as you see, there is some kind of similarity between all of the religions in the world and all of the belief systems. And they all point a certain way in a certain, and they're pointing to, toward the way of unification. And you have a way of explaining it. I think it goes, every religion has uh, mysticism in it. And in that mysticism, there is unity, correct? Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, you are the one that said it, you're, that. <laughs> <laughs> which is um i think that's that's beautiful because it's true i mean i'm not a I, i'm pretty sure you you're way more religious scholar than i am but from all of the wikipedia pages that i've read i just i've seen that like there it is just all of these belief systems are just pointing us in the direction and to tell us just in in a various different uh different languages and different practices they're just telling us that look you're all one thing like human beings are just just be a little less uh, selfish, be a little more selfless, uh, respect one another. And, uh, you know, you're just, it's all about love, essentially. And it, it, we just, it seems to get lost in translation over the years of, you know, this, so there's some people that say this is how it should be. And there's some people that say this is how it should be. And then we get into wars over books. And it's just, it's, people just lost the meaning of what it, what these religious texts mean. So that's why I wanted to bring you on here and hopefully you can put a little more eloquently than I could. Cause um, I did notice that you are also a very, very eloquent man. You, uh, you're, you seem to be very studious. So yeah, man, if you could, if you want to start this thing off before I go off on a rant, uh, <laughs> a little bit about yourself, your background and how you came to uh, create the Seekers of Unity YouTube channel. Sure. Um... Where should we begin? I am Australian. I was born in Sydney, Australia, to a Orthodox Jewish family, a Hasidic family. And I, from a very young age, I was learning Hasidut, which is Jewish mysticism today. It's a, a brainchild kind of of Kabbalah, which is the more popular, better known form of Jewish mysticism. And I was learning it for a long time. And to be honest, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was like very esoteric and very abstract and very um, celestial. And I didn't see how it spoke to me in my life. I mean, I was at the time I was 13, 14, 15, 16. I was a young teenager. That's when we began learning. And um, just by like random, I mean, nothing's by chance, but what we would call chance, I discovered uh, through a novel I was reading, I do love reading books. I've always been part of my identity. <laughs> um, that there were, that there was this idea of mysticism in other traditions. And I like at the time, I didn't even understand that what I was studying was Jewish mysticism. That's like a sort of an English or Christian scholarly term, which I came later to understand was a term, which is what, uh, what I was, what, what I was studying was, but then discovering that there was mysticism in other traditions and then beginning to explore the similarities, um, and the, the drives that they all push in the same direction and, and the motivation and the reasoning behind them. Uh, and then the beautiful differences between them. It really, it really kind of lit my heart on fire. 
Um, and ever since then, I've really been studying my own mysticism, Jewish mysticism, and uh, mysticism of other traditions, which is just so beautiful. And, and I think, as you said, it's true that, that these religions, these great religions do share this core truth. And sometimes it gets lost, unfortunately. And I think that they share that core truth because so there's something about the human experience which, to which unity rings true. And I'm sure we'll get into that as the discussion goes on. And that's really just been what I've been chasing. And for a long time, I had this romantic idea of like going and living by some like river in the woods and writing a book and trying to like get these ideas out on the table. And then um, slowly I began to like learn the process of learning is learning how little you know, really, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize how little I know and how many people have come before me and already explored these ideas and beginning to explore them, which was just an incredible experience too. Um, and a friend of mine was like, hey, Zevi, instead of trying to like write a book, which is going to take you like a decade, why don't you just start putting out like short videos on YouTube? Like start doing, I started with like a book review and then slowly people caught on like, hey, this is really great. We'd love to um, get involved. And the truth is there's like so much information out there already, but what I've been finding is that we were able to create not just more information and more content, which there's so much of, thank God, but real conversation and community of people who are like-minded, people who are seeking together. Um, and that's really been the real gift um, of this journey. I think, I don't want to, if I continue, this, I'm going to start ranting on and getting all, getting, getting all <laughs> yeah, teary. We're check up. ourselves on the rants, I guess. Good. So, so, um, yeah, that's beautiful, man. I think that is an awesome, like that, that's what the world needs. I think that is the, that mission is so close to, uh, just like that. The, what higher purpose is there than uniting all belief systems that tear us apart? You know, that is, that is, uh, I, I love it, man. I think that's awesome. So what would you, how would you, um, would you say mysticism is like meaning behind the face value of the words in all of these, this literature. It's like, it's like, there's the, there's the face value of like all the stories in the allegories, but then there's something behind that, that means more. Is that how you would classify mysticism as? Yeah. So I guess it depends on which context you're using the word in, but if you're using mysticism in a religious context, um, you're absolutely correct. And, and to be, to get a bit uh, technical here and, and academic, um, the term mysticism, which originates in, in Christian thought, coming from the Greek mystikoi, which means to close one's eyes or mouth, came to prominence in Greek theology to really mean a type of interpretation of the Bible. So, so mysticism was really first used as, as mystical theology. And what it meant was that there was the face value of the scripture, of the verse in the Bible, um, be it you know the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Bible, and the mystical reading was to read the beyond that. And that really begins with people like, Philo of Alexandria, who begin to read the text allegorically and saying, when we say Abraham, we're really meaning, we're talking about the soul. When we say Sarah, we're talking about the body. When we're talking about Egypt, we're talking about a state of consciousness, all of these different readings. So, so mystical theology, where, where the term mysticism later derives from, um, is actually about looking beyond the words of, of re- the revealed words, the words of revelation to see what there really is behind them. Um, and in some sense, there's a very nice synergy there with a more broad definition of mysticism, which is uh, to use now a bit of an Eastern metaphor. There's the um, there's the the story of the of the fellow who points at the moon. And he says, "Look, there is the moon," and all the students who who aren't so sure they look at his finger and they think that the finger is the moon. And he and the the, the, the moral of the story is don't confuse the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself. So the words of religion you could say are like the finger pointing to the reality, which is yeah. the unity, which is love, which is God, which is consciousness, which is bliss, whatever however we want to call it. 
Um, and, and mysticism is about seeing beyond, not, not getting stuck with those words and seeing beyond them to the reality that lies behind them. So mm. I, think, I think that your, that definition works well, both in a technical sense and, and in a um, common sense. Why do you think the authors decided to write in that way that was sort of symbolic? Because do you believe mm. that these were actual stories as well? Like, there, is there some truth to the actual, like, the, you know, the, the biblical stories? Or are these not meant to be taken at face value at all? Is there actually the opposite? And it's just actually all just symbols. So that's a great question. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very long debated question, both in, in Jewish theology and in other traditions that are dealing with these same stories. Um, and there's generally a spectrum of ways that that, that question is answered. But the, the answer which most appeals to myself is one that finds a place for both of them, where there's a, there's a phrase in, in Talmudic Judaism where we say, that the verse itself can never leave its simple, like plain meaning, that the plain meaning always remains. That even when we find allegorical truths behind it, we don't negate the story itself. That's, that's one side of it. So the other side of it is that when we talk about truth, we think about truth as something that truth as something which is referenced to something that happened literally in the external world. So a historical truth is something we can talk about as truth. But I think that historical truth is a, is a circumstantial truth, right? So the fact that, let's say, I woke up this morning at 6.30 in the morning, right? That, that's true. It's circumstantially true. It's not necessarily true. There was, no, there was no inherent reason why, by definition, I needed to wake up at six. It was a contingent truth. It was truth because it happened as such. Mm. But then there are truths that are truths because they're, they're fundamentally true. Not because they happen to have happened, but because, because they are is why they unfolded in reality. Oh. And those truths are spiritual truths, are mythological truths, are poetic truths, are, are, are um, I would say also moral and ethical truths. And when I'm, when I'm looking at, to a biblical text for truth, the historical truth is not so important. That's, that's really a contingency. And, and I think people get stuck on that point. People are like, did this really happen? Did it not really happen? And the question is, is not, not did that happen, but is it happening? So when we talk about Mount Sinai, for example, or any of the miracles, the, the exodus from Egypt, all the great miracles in the biblical story from the perspective of Jewish mysticism, the question is not what did those things happen? The question is, are they happening for us now? Where do we see our own seas splitting? Where, would we, where do we see our own exoduses from Egypt? Where would we see our own revelations at Sinai? So the question is, is, is sort of atemporalized. It's taken out of history and brought into the present. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, in, but in the end of the day, um, part of the, and part of the, without, without getting too lost here, part of the beauty, I think of mysticism in the fact that it has a power to unite, it also unites those two truths. It finds a way to, to hold on to what we could call the simple historical truth with the, the deeper spiritual truth and to not have them at odds with one another, but to find a way to synthesize them where they can both be pertinent and, and both be meaningful. Mm. Yeah. That's how I see it as well. Why do you think it got lost over the years? Because I feel like the majority of people that are have a tradition, like they have these religious traditions that have been passed on in their family for generations. It seems like people only get stuck on the stories in the actual historical representation. They don't really know what these were. Because all right, so first of all, my background is I've never. My parents didn't raise me to be any sort of tradition at all. I was free to believe whatever I wanted to believe. So I am a studious somewhat more than most people in, my, in, in looking at all the different philosophies of the world. 
and it brought me to like there is some kind of universal truth through all of these through all of these stories and i think it was actually a blessing where my, my parents didn't raise me that way because i might have got sucked into the story and it's you know it's not anybody's fault it's just how it was it's just it's just through the tradition so why do you think that through the traditions it seems like people just they lose the actual true meaning of where these came from and what these mean for us as human beings yeah i mean it's it's definitely a very real question um and a hard question and and there's probably more than one answer um and perhaps you can like think together think in conversation yeah um I w the first the first two thoughts that pop into my head is one is that the truths that are being contained within the narratives within the stories um there's a great line from a i think he's a french theorist of mythology he says that a myth is not a story which is untrue it's a truth told in the form of a story so these these biblical myths let's say these these truths told the stories sometimes the truth which they're trying to convey is fundamentally and inherently inexpressible it's ineffable which is very very typical of mysticism right even in contemporary forms of mysticism people that have uh, you know a, a trip down mystical experience you know they've come down from doing a doing a heroic dose of whatever it is and you ask them to like tell me what happened tell me what you experienced the first thing is wow there are no words like i can't I, like i just can't say like language is inadequate to to describe what just happened ineffability which is which according to like scholars of mysticism is one of the key characteristics of of mystical experiences so because because what they're trying to express is fundamentally inexpressible um and therefore the need to clothe it in these narratives can create a situation where what need to what what had to have been expressed that couldn't have been expressed ends up not being uh seen and expressed and that's 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 part of perhaps the challenge mm -hmm. that the let's say the biblical or, or religious authors in, in all traditions have another one um another one perhaps is that there there is there's something to, to be to look at this from a bit more of a larger cosmic scale there's something in uh in reality which seems to be like a fundamental law or or habit of reality where there's a flow there's a pulse to life life is not static and stagnant things move right the tide comes in and out the heart pumps the blood back and forth the doubt yeah there's there's a certain in in kabbalah we call there's like this pulse back and forth there's the negative and the, and the positive there's masculine and feminine and that that kind of that paradigm runs through all of reality um and there's a fundamental like dance of reality you know shakti yeah. and shiva every tradition has some way of referring to it and we see it nature is full of this and and i think that religion um, which is not other than nature, which is not other than the cosmos as well, also has its own flow, its own, you know, ebb and flow, its own hills and valleys. Um, and that could just be part of the fundamental structure of everything else that has flow and, and, and pulse to it. And, and you see that in the case of religion where you have these, these pulsations, these waves between, you know, a, an inspired prophet, a mystic, an enlightened being who comes and, and tries passing this truth. And then inevitably it's going to get, you know, stolified and, and trapped in, in tradition and in, in institutions and in, in ritual that's, that's lost the meaning. And then that necessitates someone else to stand up to the plate and for her to bring that back to the people and to bring the fire back and the energy back. And there's something, if, if it was only smooth sailing the whole way around, then, there, then there'd be something lost about it. The, the fact that that religion has kind of this inbuilt mechanism where it needs to be revived every few, yeah. you know, decades, a hundred years, perhaps as part of the beauty uh, of the system. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is true, man. It's, it seems like we need to lose our way in order to find it. Like if we were always found all the time, then we wouldn't really know. How do I phrase this? If we always, I guess unity wouldn't be so special if we didn't feel any disconnect. Like if we were always unified and that's how we felt all the time. Yeah, it, it would seem like we're just not on that that flow. It's like a balancing act in a way, that yin and the yang. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I think this is like a basic idea that runs through a lot of philosophy of language and alan watts was like always would talk about this idea how like if there was no summer there would be no such thing as winter if there was no night there would be no such thing as day like we need the polarity and the antinomy to to create any meaning at all um that's my that's my like generous reading of what's happening in religious history without me like coming up and being like how these people keep messing it up and they keep like misunderstanding that's like my generous to be like no it's just the universe doing its thing (laughs) yeah i mean yeah even though those people are messing it up it is still just the universe doing its thing essentially yeah there's nothing i mean there's nothing other than the universe doing its thing right (laughs) yes yes the whole truth is just it's just we're all just the universe doing its thing (laughs) for sure do you think so because of that you don't see a world that's completely unified like do you think that's too ideal so i'm i'm very much about unity like my whole project is seekers of unity but if i had like more space to like to add more to the title i don't think unity itself cuts it um i think there's like a a a better expression which is unity in diversity um Mm. and there's an old there's an old idea that runs through a lot of ancient myths um, I'll just give you the Kabbalistic version because it's one I know best. But the, the idea is that before this entity, you know, the, the unified all that we call God in the West creates the world, God is already unified. Um, and, and God is, is already sort of perfect in God's being and doesn't need anything to, to be more like perfect than it already is. And then the Kabbalists ask a question, so then why did God create the world? And the answer is because there was something lacking in God's perfection, in God's perfect unity. There was something which was not there, um, which is kind of a paradox because, because the perfect has to include all. The only thing that the perfect can be missing is imperfection. And the Kabbalists say that God actually wanted some, some semblance of imperfection to perfect God's own perfection. And, and I think that's the space of diversity inside unity and unity in diversity where the two of them go in back into that dance, which is really like that yin yang that completes them. It's not, if it was just, if the whole circle was white, it wouldn't be complete. It's because you have the black and the white and the white and the black and the black and the white for all eternity, that there's something, there's something that, that necessitates that. And, and I think that just a stable, and, and I think this idea can be applied like in psychology and politics and economics, a stable field, right? Does not hold its own stability. In, in, in physics and in, 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 in sociology and like in, nothing, nothing stable maintains itself because it has to collapse at some point. It has to, the, the, the second that unity introspects upon itself, when the one sees itself, it's already no longer just one, it's already one plus the self-observation. So un, unity fundamentally collapses to make way for diversity, to make way for unity, to make way for diversity. Mm. Um, so, so, and yeah, and I think as well, I think, I mean, this has implications perhaps for like, um, utopianistic political thinking is, is it possible to have a real messianic utopian age without it inviting you know some sort of fall back into itself so that it can continue yeah. to to grow which is one of the great conundrums you see this in a lot of the cosmologies where where the where the cycle just goes on and on and and the the um 
sort of the epochs, the eras, they, they never, they don't reach an end. They just, they keep, they keep recycling and keep spiraling. Yeah. That's what Eastern traditions say is that we're just in this giant cycle. Like this universe is just this giant cycle that's just coming into being and it just never really ends. And yeah. Uh, do you, is there, so and the, the only conclusion you can come to is you just ride the line between the yin and yang. You ride the line between, you know, it is the Tao, it is the way. Like you ride that line between the good and the bad and the waves and the ups and the downs. So it's interesting that you mentioned the, 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 Kab, the Kabbalah and mm-hmm. um, how they have that belief. Because um, that's very similar to like uh, Brahmin and Atman and Hindu beliefs with, you know, pretty much the entire universe is Brahman, but he got a little bored. So he decided to create out of his boredom us in the material world. And uh, through that, we each have Atman in, inside of all of us, our own soul, I guess you could say. And that is, it is God. Like all through all of our Atmans add up to Brahman. And that's pretty much what you just said from the Kabbalah. It's just that, you know, there is no unity. There is not just, without Brahman, there cannot be Atman. And without Atman, there cannot be Brahman. And with the, you can't just have one aspect of the yin and the yang. You can't just have yin and you can't just have yang. So as a human being, it seems like once you realize the fundamental polarities, you have to ride that line, right? Which comes from Eastern traditions. So my question to you is, does, does Judaism have any, I don't really know too much about Judaism. Does, does it have any like belief system in the Tao? in like that, that, that the wave, the flow, like going with that flow, is there anything in that, in the, like the Kabla or I don't, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think you said it very well. And, um, and, and the Kabbalists have, have the same idea uh, in almost identical language where they have God as infinite. Um, and the term typically uses the insof, literally the one without end, which I think would be the closest equivalent to um, what these called Brahman. Um, and then within the human, you have a manifestation of that. And it has five different terms, depending on which level of kind of soul it's referring to. Nefesh, Ruch, Neshama, Chai, Yechida. But they're all seen as, as fundamentally one with the with Brahman, one with the Ensof, with the infinite. And um, because true infinity, everything has to be one with infinity, or else it's not true infinity. Right? True infinity includes includes everything. Yeah. And um, the and the idea that there is that there's some sort of boredom that sets in um, that that leads way I think is is sort of a, a human or an anthropomorphic way of talking about this fundamental instability of unity, which leads way for duality to back to unity. Um, and and the cycles do come into existence. The Kabbalists, for example, speak about um, the in the biblical. You know, when we talk about agricultural and the laws in the Bible, there's what we call the, uh, there's the weeks, there's the Shemitot, the seven years and the 50 years, the Yovel. And the Kabbalists see these as, as references to the cosmic cycles of the um, of seven millennia and then 50 millennia and how like things keep um, repeating back on themselves. But um, one second, you asked a specific question and I'm getting distracted. What was your specific question? It was, is in, in Judaism, is there... Um, oh, about the way, of the, of the right. way, the Tao, the flow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> um, so, yes. So there, there is. So this is this is where Jewish mysticism actually does something very unique. Um, and by unique, I don't mean better. I just mean I'm, I mean unique, and I, and I think uniqueness is important. And I think it's important to see 
the the unity and the duality within the unity, the, the, the multiplicity, the diversity within the unity. What, what Jewish mysticism does, and it does with, with quite a strong degree of genius, is that it's, it does not divorce itself from Jewish ritualism um, or from what's, what's known quite sometimes disparagingly as Jewish uh, legalism. So within, just to give a, a basic introduction, a, sort of a Judaism 101, Judaism has um, the, the, the corpus of Judaism, what, what would be in, in the Eastern traditions, the Dharma is called the, the Torah in Judaism, which is the collective wisdom, the scriptures and through the ages of, of Judaism. Um, and it's divided in different ways. For example, there is the written Torah, which is the, the, the Bible, the, the Tanakh. Uh, and then there's the, the, the oral or the verbal tradition, which includes the Mishnah and the Talmud and other works like that. Another way which the division is done is between the revealed aspects of Torah and the, the exoteric, what's, what's taught to the public, and there's the esoteric, the hidden parts, which includes things like Kabbalah and Hasidot and earlier forms like uh, the Maseh Bereshit, Maseh Merkava, and different forms of the esoteric side of Judaism. But what's, what's fascinating and perhaps to some degree unique in Judaism is that throughout Jewish history, the masters of the, of the hidden wisdom in Judaism were always at the same time, the same people who were the masters of the revealed aspects of, of Judaism. It wasn't that you had one group of scholars who would be experts in, in Jewish law, what would be the equivalent of say Sharia in Islam or canonical law in Christianity. And then a different group of scholars who would be experts in, in mysticism and in, in meditation and in divination and all kinds of things. It was the very same people in every generation who, who were the heads of both of those fields. So, uh, so the greatest halachic, the greatest legal thinkers in Judaism are the greatest Kabbalists throughout Jewish history. Uh, and this is, this is not an exception from the rule. This is, this is the rule in, in Jewish history, which is, and, and what happens as a result is, is that these incredible Jewish mystics find a way of threading their Jewish legal side with the Jewish mystical side, where they become, to the point where they become inseparable. Um, and the reason I'm giving you this whole long buildup is because in the Hebrew word halacha, which is the word for Jewish law, actually means, the literal translation is the path, the way, the, the Tao. So what happens is, is the very legal, um, min the, the minutia, and, and, and to, to, to talk about the minutia of Jewish law is an understatement. Jewish law tells you how to tie your shoelaces in the morning, how to cut your toenails, how to wipe your butt when you're finished on the bathroom, what blessings to say after you've done that, what the first thing you say in the morning, the last thing you say at night, the first thing you say when a child's born, the last thing you say when you die. There is not a, there's not a moment in a Jewish life which is not governed very particularly and minutely by Jewish law, by halacha. Um, and, and one could see that as antithesis to spirituality, because spirituality, people see it as something which is free-flowing and inspired and, you know, just just the, the wu-wei and going with the flow. And what happens in Judaism is that the in sort of the insane minutia of Jewish law, that itself becomes the way that it becomes the Tao to God, to, to, the, to the infinite, which is a very, which is a very, very bizarre thing. Um, and until someone actually experiences it themselves, it, it's very baffling because from the outside, all of these like these these tomes and tomes of rules of these minute, minute, minute rules seem seem very non spiritual. Until one practices and, and experiences how spirituality is very much threaded through them um, in a way that's that's entirely inseparable. Hmm. So it seems like almost like a code in a way. Like they, yes, 
That's yes. Yeah. So the word code is a very good one. The, the, word, the typical English translation of, of one of the latest and most important books of Jewish law that all Jews around the world follow is in Hebrew, it's called the Shulchan Aruch, which for bizarre reasons literally means the set table. But it's, when, it's, when it's typically translated into English, it's called the code of Jewish law because it's really a coda. It's really, it's really a very, very specific code that governs every aspect of, of one's life. Oh, that's very interesting. And you've read all of this, and <laughs> um, so your thing. So, the one one of the beauties and challenges of of Jewish literature, uh, being the people of the book, we're not just the people of of a book, which is the Bible. We're, we're people of many many books, and and there's been so much Jewish literature that's been written uh, in so many fields, including in the field of halacha. Um, for someone to have for someone to have read all of halacha uh, would be would be a few lifetimes of a project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up in a in a Orthodox household where where halacha first is just imbibed in the atmosphere by osmosis, um, and then I went to yeshiva, which is the a form of Orthodox education. It's the equivalent of let's say madrasa in Islam, or um, if someone goes to say to be a priest in, in Christianity, or um, whatever. The tradition uh, where it's full, where we study from 7.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night. Um, and, and the bulk of it, the bulk of it is, is Talmud, uh, which is sort of the, an earlier manifestation of Halakha, and then Shulchan Aruch, which is uh, the, the, the final iteration of the code of Jewish law. Um, so yeah, we could, we could have uh, a whole entire conversation about, about Halakha and history of Halakha. It's something which I'm very passionate about, something which I studied intensely and, and, and have taught. There were, there were times where I, was, where I just taught Halakha without teaching any uh, philosophy or Jewish mysticism. Um, and it's an amazing, uh, Halakha is, is an incredible system. Um, but uh, I, I can't, I kind of said to, to, to have written, to have read all of Halakha. There's, there's, I, I definitely, uh, in, in comparison to the amount of Halakha that there is to know, uh, I, feel, I feel very much like Isaac Newton, who said that when he contemplates the mysteries of the universe, he feels like a child sitting on the shore playing with some shiny seashells while the whole ocean lays unexplored in front of him and uh and jewish 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 wisdom even just the revealed side of torah is called is called the ocean that's the nickname for it because it really is uh, a, a, a like a bottomless ocean wow so how far back do these writings go yeah so the the beginning of the world essentially <laughs> um so the the first the, the earliest the earliest writings of the jewish canon are the biblical texts themselves. Um, and those, those go back to ancient Israelite religion, you know, well, well, bef- this is like, we're talking three, 4,000 years back to like the beginning of, of when these, when, when human civilizations begin to form, you know, religious, um, it's even before there's religions when there's still like these family um, tribes and, and, um, and, and, and sort of small, small, um, yeah, tribes essentially that are being formed amongst themselves and begin to write down those writings and pass them down through the ages. Um, what happens is there, we mentioned before that there's a distinction between the written and the, and the oral part of Torah. So the written parts of Torah are, are written from, you know, from the very beginnings of the, the prophets. So, you know, the, the stories of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, these go back thousands of years. And then there is the part of Jewish, there's the part of Jewish law, which is just, which is not written down, which is just spoken verbally. 
um, and part of the stipulation of the of the system is that these things are actually not allowed to be written down. They have to be passed down as oral traditions, just something that you have in many cultures around the world. Um, but in many cultures, unfortunately, the people who held that wisdom just in their heads and in their hearts, uh, they died and they didn't, they didn't have a chance to pass that on. And what happened um, around the turn of the millennia while the Roman Empire um, was was um, had was occupying uh, Judea and Israel at the time, they began to actually headhunt, literally, those sages who had this wisdom in their heads. Um, and they began to, to try and exterminate them, to try and eradicate this, the, the, the wisdom of Judaism, at least the, the, what was kept orally. And one great sage, um, just after the turn of millennia, began to go around and, and, and collect go essentially and interview these men, these great men, these great sages, and collect their teachings and compile them, which was forbidden, right? Because these, these, these teachings were not allowed to be written down. They, were ha they had to be kept verbal and oral. Um, and he, he took it into his hands. He kind of, it was a moment in history where he decided that sometimes you have to break the law to save the law. Um, and, he, and that's what he does. And, uh, and he, yeah, he goes and he writes it all down. And that becomes known as the Mishnah. Um, which is which means the teaching, the repetition, um, and it gets codified about the year 200 CE. Is that's when the final touches are put and the missions are closed. It's made up of six tract six tractates, and around 200 CE it's closed. And then for the next 300 years, the sages debate because the mission was written very hastily and very very uh, tersely. The the sages both in Israel and now in Babylon, where they've been exiled, to begin to debate what this text really means. And 300 years later, the next great volume, which like quadruples, if not like 10 times in size of the Mishnah, which is the Talmud. Um, and, and, and essentially the, the rest of Jewish history is the same story repeating itself where the subsequent generations will turn back on the previous sages' words, debate them out, argue them out, and continue to produce literature, which is trying to um, explicate and, and make sense of the previous generations. And then what, what happens is there's this endless living chain of wisdom that gets passed down and gets debated and gets discussed. Um, and that, and that continues until today. Mm. Wow. That's pretty nuts. Do you think that, so why do you think, um, it was just meant to be oral? Do you think there is something that gets lost in the transmission of when you take an idea or like an energy form in the, in the, in the, in the form of oral tradition, and then you translate that, on paper you think they saw that that could be corrupted in a way like if yeah yeah because yeah, i kind of so see um as communication between say me and you or just another person like speaking is a different form of communication more than just words like there's there's some kind of transmission that's going on behind the scenes when when i speak to somebody and i you know speak from the heart and like there's, there's a certain kind of energy and authenticity there and maybe they saw that and they saw that there was something that was going to be lost when I take this oral tradition and I put it on paper. Yeah. I think it has something yeah. to do with that. Yeah. I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think, I think that's what it comes down to because um, information is not just about bits. It's not just about ones and zeros. It's not just about um, words and it doesn't matter how they're given over the way that message is, is given over um, sometimes is more than the message itself. Uh, you know, there's a modern, who was the, there was a Canadian media theorist who's become quite popular, Marshall McLuhan. He said, the medium is the message that very often it's not what you say, it's, it's how it's being said. Yeah. And I think that the, the sages who forbade the writing down the Torah initially very much understood 
you know, there was there was a place for written text, and that did one thing, and there was a place for oral transmission, which could not be replaced, which could not be done away with, and which could not be replicated by writing it down. And and I think that's very true. And I think I think that when we when we speak, there's a there's a giving of self that we that we transmit over. Um, there's an interesting idea just to just to back up a little when God gives the Torah at Mount Sinai um, the very first word that he tells the people of Israel is Anochi Hashem Lokecha I am the Lord your God that took you out of Egypt and etc etc and then goes on to list the Ten Commandments the Kabbalists take that first Hebrew word Anochi and they say it's actually an acronym another code another secret here an acronym for Ana Nafshi Ksavot Yavot I myself have written my soul into them, which is God saying that in these words of Torah, I have inscribed, I've transcribed, I've written down my very soul. So if you take these words and, and you and you delve into them and you live with them, you will be able to, to encounter the soul of God, is the is what the Kabbalists say. And but that is a task which is which is Herculean that only a God can do to put soul into into text. Or only some of the greatest poets in, in, in history were able to put their entire being into into their words. For, for most humans, we still have that capacity, but we have that capacity in speech. That when we're talking, we can put ourselves into, into our words. And, and it's, definitely, it's definitely for that reason why, why that um, was held off. But part of, I think part of the genius of Judah the Prince, who was the man who wrote down the Mishnah, is that he was able to maintain a, a verbal aspect in the text for a few reasons firstly because the text is not a it's not a it's not a finished text the text doesn't give you conclusions the text only gives you opinions it's very jewish it's like mm-hmm. the, the first mishnah is that um these rabbis say that you can you can pray the shema until this hour and these ones say no only until this hour and these ones say when they said this hour they meant in the case it was like this one that one said no, no no when those guys said this one they really meant and that's that's so, so the text is really it's it looks like written text but it's really verbal and 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 when it's spoken out loud it, it comes alive itself so that's one element and the other element is that it that it's intentionally both it has no conclusion it has no bottom line and it's inconclusive itself in that in that it's missing and then it's it's empty and then it has gaps like like in speech and what that what that demands is that demands that later generations come and fill those blanks and those voids with their own voices with with their own mm. souls so the text is is written in a in a way which is the the mishnah incidentally by the way is the same hebrew letters as the word neshama as soul where which means that if you take the text and you and you can spin it around and play with it and get into it the soul comes out and it's your own soul that you're putting into it, that you're seeing reflected back essentially. Mm. It seems to me, it's like, we're, we're telling a story that's not yet finished. It's like, oh, absolutely. Books, like those books are just the beginning and we're, we're continually telling it through our own speech, through our own word. That's why they say in the, you know, in the beginning it was the word, right? It was God uttered and he created the universe and that's what we're doing. We're, we're speaking and we're creating this universe, quite literally through this podcast, I'm creating a medium of speaking and creating something that other people in other parts of the world can, can see and take in that transmission. And, and from there, the world changes and the universe changes. And that happens not only through podcasts and through the internet and through stuff like you do and I do, it happens in every day in our life with the words that we choose to utter and the transmissions that we choose to, to transmit to other people. Wow, man, that actually just blew my mind. It's like we're, I'm, I'm, I felt like I'm in this story that's just 
it's not finished yet. We're creating the story. And it seems like that's what the meaning of it was of it is, is that we are God. We're, we're not all God. We're a portion of God. And the portion of God that we are is the creative aspect through our words. Right? Yeah, man. You, you would totally, totally, totally dig Jewish mysticism because that is like literally what you just said is, is textbook Jewish mysticism. <laughs> um, and I'll just, I'll just give you the, the jargon. Um, but the idea you have 100%. So the Kabbalists look to the biblical narrative where God creates the world in the very first few verses of Genesis. And the medium of creation is not that God builds anything. The medium, if you look at the verses, is God speaks the world into existence, right? Vayomer Elohim Yehiar. God said, let there be light. Vayihiar, and there was light. God, God says, let, there, let, the, let the heavens be separated from the earth, and they, they were separated. And the Kabbalists say that there are, so there are 10, if you count them in total, there are 10 sayings, 10 utterances. And the Kabbalists say that God continues, that those words are continually being spoken by the divine, by the infinite, into existence. And those words create reality. And the Kabbalists say that the same way that God creates reality with speech, we, being not other than God, have that power with our speech to create our own realities, to create our states of being, our states of awareness and perception and relationships. And the, the power of speech, the creative power in speech is such a core principle um, in Jewish law and in Jewish thought that there's also the inverse, which is destructive speech, which is, which is Lashon Hara, which is called evil speech because it's, it's words that destroy. When we speak negatively about someone else, you're, in a way you're killing that person because you're killing they're who they are in the in the minds of other people and that person that exists in their minds is now being killed because you've you've done away with them and inversely when you speak kindly about someone you allow their you allow who the idea of them in the minds of others to continue to proliferate positively and you're creating you're giving birth and you're you're and there's that idea of of the the, the creative power and energy speech is really is really something which runs through and through uh, the Kabbalistic system mm. in, in a way, which is very interesting because, because in many mystical traditions, speech is seen as the enemy sometimes because we live in a world, which is, which is unified. You know, nature has no boundaries, has no borders. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no gap between the leaf and the branch and the branch and the, and the trunk and the trunk and the roots and the roots in the earth. But with words, we call that, we say, okay, that's leaf, that's branch. That's, and words have a divisive power. And a lot of Eastern traditions and in Christian and very, various forms of mysticism, it's words are seen as the enemy, um, and and in some in some way uniquely um, as well. Not to not to not to say that one's better than the other. I think I think there's a very strong truth in that as well. But something that's unique in Jewish mysticism is that the Kabbalists don't turn away from words. They they dive into the creative energy of words and into the, the positive power of words and the, the the power that a loving that a kind that a caring word can do. The the power that it has to to broke to you know mend a broken heart. And um, and to, to bring healing to the world with with simply with speech is something which the Kabbalists really get very 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 excited about. Mm. Yeah, I definitely have to dive into the Kabbalah. That's for sure. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll, I'm going to send you some. I'm going to send you some cool essays that um, explain kind of this idea of the the creative power of speech from the perspective of the Kabbalists. I think you'll dig it. Yeah, definitely. Is there different translations that like? Are there, is there a better translation that someone should dive into, in your opinion? Well, so um, in terms of in terms of primary texts of Kabbalah, like like original texts written hundreds of years ago, there there are no help uh, in, in in any translation 
for for beginner for someone that that doesn't have you know strong grasp of, of what they're talking about to get into because they the capitalists create talking about the creative and that power of speech the capitalists create their own worlds the capitalists have their own very sophisticated you know um cosmology and metaphysic and and and, and chain of being where they have you know four worlds atzilus briotzer asira and they have the ten spherod kesser and and unless one understands like what those terms mean and, and what they're referring to, uh, which takes a while, um, reading the primary texts are not so helpful themselves. Mm-hmm. Th- there are instances when one has a really strong intuitive sense that they've developed from other mystical traditions, and they can right away see those parallels and, and understand what's going on and sort of jump start those years of of necessary introduction. Um, but I think the, 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 what I would typically recommend people to do is to begin with secondary literature, to begin with, you know, contemporary or, or early modern scholars who take these ideas and kind of repackage them in a more accessible language um, for, for sort of the, the lay person. Um, and there's, there's really great scholarship that's been done to try and explicate um, Jewish mysticism and to make it accessible both from a sort of religious and a, and a confessional standpoint and from an academic and more historical objective standpoint, really, really great work has been done. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely appreciate it if you send me some stuff. That's awesome. 100%. I, I've actually, which is, this is just how the universe works. There's somebody that was telling me that they were going to actually gift me, uh, cause, uh, the Kabbalah at work and they have yet to bring it in for me, but it's just a weird coincidence that like uh, they said that to me and then I found you and then we're talking about this now. So it just seems right. like a right. dawn, dawning of fate. Right. I do, I, do, I do hate to burst your bubble. There, there is no one book called the Kabbalah. There, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Kabbalah is, is, uh, literally, literally just means the received wisdom of the ages. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's something which spans centuries. Um, with hundreds of authors and hundreds of texts and hundreds of genres and hundreds of, of uh, subcategories. Um, there, there's, no, there's no one. There, there is a text um, which is not a Jewish text. It's a Hermetic text called the, called the Kabbalion, I think is, is how it's pronounced. Oh, I've read um, that actually. Right, right, all right. Okay, so if that's not what they were talking about, then yeah. So th- there, are, there, are, like, there are some very well known texts of, of, of Kabbalah. The Zohar is perhaps the best known texts of Kabbalah, Sefer Yitzira, Sefer Abai, um, Sefer Ezeel Amalach. There, there are some like very, very uh, important classic texts and texts which I've discussed on the channel and we've done classes and discussions on them. But there is, there's, no, there's no one text called, um, called Kabbalah. Okay, well, that's good to know. Unless, unless, unless there, are, there are modern books that have been written by modern scholars, which, which are like English scholarly introductions to Kabbalah, which can be called, which, which may be titled Kabbalah. Mm. Um, that, that may be what they're referring to. Probably. Yeah. I still have yet to receive the book, so we'll see. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, like contemporary scholars that people like, you know, um, Moshe Dell and, and Ellie Wolfson and, um, Gershon Shalom. Um, and they have amongst their titles, they probably have at least a few that are just called Kabbalah. What is the basis of all of this that our words have power to create? Um, I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that the, the create, I think, I think the creative energy in words is a very, very strong theme that runs throughout Kabbalah. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's the starting point of Kabbalah. I think, I think it's part of the, the, the methodology or the hermeneutics of Kabbalah. Um, the, what the, what the starting point of Kabbalah is, is a very good question. I think it boils down to, um, a, a tr- an attempt to understand 
the unity of God and, and what that means, the unity of reality. I think I think if we if we trace it back metaphysically, that's where it comes down to. Um, people may trace it historically to, as we said earlier, to actually um, allegorical and mystical interpretations of 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 the biblical text. Um, so the, the idea of the creative power of speech is is something which emerges amongst the Kabbalistic thinking. And part of that is also in another another important theme in Kabbalah, which is related to that is the idea of the gematria, of the, the numerology of, of the Hebrew letters, where where numbers have some sort of fundamental relationship with fundamental reality, like in Pythagoreanism and Neo-Pythagoreanism, and, and, it's, and, uh, and there's a similar play where the words we speak in Hebrew, every Hebrew word, um, unlike in English where we have you know, one set of alphabet and one set of Roman numerals. We have numbers and letters in Hebrew. We only have letters and those letters are the numbers. So mm-hmm. the Aleph, the A is one, the base, the B is two. So when you speak every word, every word you speak, you're speaking also calculations and, and strings of numbers as well. Um, which is also in part, part of that creative side of language is, is the creative side of, 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 of arithmetic of, of mathematics, which is also a, a very, rich and bizarre field for itself yeah i watched your gematria a lecture actually last night and oh nice nice yeah i was just like wow this is really in depth i watched the whole thing though and the ending was great like i i got you know i got what you were trying to the point you're trying to get across nice. which was, was nice. amazing but i could see how it's just like a rabbit hole in itself oh like, for sure for sure entire thing of gematria there was some guy i forget his name but he um maybe you know he came up with the that he used gematria to find out that the genetic coding, like our DNA, like um, A, T, C, and G somehow correlates yeah. with Yahweh. Like Y, H, W, H, right? Isn't that like what it is, Yahweh? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest here. It's, it's actually funny that you, that, you, that you watched the video. And I'll tell you why. Because I, at the time, I was teaching in an institution uh, down in Australia where I'm from. Um, and they were doing like a series of lectures. And they asked all of like the in-house teachers to, to, to teach something, but they didn't, they didn't let, they didn't like have us choose the topics. They like dished out the topics to us. It was like, kind of like a, they sprung them as a surprise on us. It's like, here, you have like two days to, to come back and you're going to be lecturing like to the audience and that. Um, and, and personally, I'm, I'm much more like enamored by words than by numbers. Number, I'm like horrible with mathematics. Yeah. I'm, I'm really no good with that. Words is like, is like, I really, where I thrive. Um, so, so as you, you could see in the lecture, the first half, I like, I was true to the subject and I spoke about numbers. The second half, I, I managed to like pivot and talk yeah. about language. Right. Yeah. Um, and the re- part of the reason which I'm skeptical of numbers, um, and, and I think that came out in the class, if like, if people were listening is because there's, there's a certain, uh, leeway that people can play with numbers, um, in a way that doesn't really have any checks and balances, right? Anyone like gr- growing up, there are always people in the community who would who would always be finding these fantastical gematrias for whatever thing they whatever whatever they wanted to prove, they would find a way to make the numbers work. And because of the flexibility of the gematria system, there's like always another way to make it fit in. And for that reason, like I have my own like a bit of trauma maybe and a bit of skepticism towards like the whole number game. Mm. Um, and and I prefer to work like in more rigid, you know, linguistic, metaphysical, historical spaces. But um, so, yeah, so like this idea of, of the, of the DNA, it sounds like a cool idea. Um, it, it sounds like something which like, I, first of all, I haven't heard of it, but which doesn't mean that it doesn't, it's not true. I, there's a lot of things I haven't heard of which are true. But um, I think, I think that they're, they're because numbers are so malleable, they're, they're unfalsifiable, right? It's, it's very hard to, to disprove anything that's done with numbers. And, and I, I think I think if something needs if something if something's going to be rigorous, there has to be a way that it, that it can also be wrong 
if it can't be yeah. wrong, it can't be this, right? So, okay. so that's my that's my that's my personal like my my peeve with with the number game. So <laughs> it's almost like confirmation bias in a way, like uh, that, yes, that guy yeah. was trying to make it seem like Yahweh was in our DNA. Yeah, yeah, and I I don't mean to talk trash about anyone that's like in, into doing the numbers and into numerology. Like I totally respect whatever talks to people. Just personally, that's not what talks to me. And um, just to be clear, like, I'm not I'm not here to like to to discredit it or to like to call the bluff of it like it's just not just not my thing it might be someone else's thing and, and that's good for them if that if that fundamentally like as well i think there's a pragmatic side which is like where do these things lead us right do these things take us closer to god i.e to being loving compassionate kind living in unity with with you know ourselves and those around us if if whatever you're doing takes you in that direction then keep doing it right you could be like you could be like counting the bricks in a wall and it turns you into a more kind and compassionate person because it's slowed you down and it's made you more, um, you know, um, you know, softer to reality and your, whatever it is, like then keep counting bricks. But if you're doing like even the holiest thing, like you're, like you're, you're fasting and you're studying and you're doing this and you're praying, but it, but you end up like being a dick to people, yeah. then, then reconsider whatever you're doing. Like, yeah, it's, it's very much, so yeah, so if people if people are like getting deep into numbers and it's making them better people and kinder people, keep doing it. If it's making them like nervous and and suspicious and conspiratorial and uh, and and paranoid, then then stop. Yep, and I think that's it, man. You just you just said it. It's that it doesn't matter what kind of rituals you do. It's how you act as a person. Like you could never go to church. You could never read a re religious text in your life. You could not even know how to read. But as long as you treat people well. And you have like the sense of, of creating a better world and creating a better, you know, yourself, just, just love, essentially, just being a good person. Then that's the most religious and godly thing that you can do. Like, it doesn't matter if you whip yourself at night or like how many religious books that you've read or you Agreed. meditate or do yoga. Like all of those things are just rituals to hopefully for a lot of people bring us closer to God. But if, the, if it doesn't, then you're just, you're missing the point. Like yeah, you just, yeah. not, which is a lot of people are missing the point in our world right now because it yeah. doesn't matter, man. Like, you know, summing this whole conversation up, it's just that we're all one. We're in, if whatever you have to do, whatever you have to read, whatever you have to go through and put yourself through to bring yourself closer to God, yeah, closer to the, the divine force that we live by, then that's what you have to do as long as it doesn't hurt yeah. anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, I mean, this message of like, like what we've been saying here is the oldest message. Like if you read when I was younger, I was very into the biblical prophets. If you read like the prophet Isaiah, he's told like the entire book, basically he's telling off the people, he's like, you guys are doing all this religious practice, but you're not being, you're not being kinder and better. And you're not being more, more holy and, and, and like tender. Like he's like, you guys fast. But you, but you, but you pass by the guy in the street who's dying from hunger. Instead of fasting, yeah. make a meal and, and invite him in and to eat with you. Like God doesn't need your fast. God does like He needs you to be kind to, to the downtrodden. Um, and yeah, there's 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 also a great there's this really great Sufi metaphor of this um, this scholar who like knows so much wisdom, right? And he's like he's studying and studying and studying to get closer to God. And another Sufi master it was like a very simple guy, and like truth to him was very simple. He said. He, he was like very straight with him. He's like, he's like, bro, you're like, you're like a donkey, which is climbing up the mountain, but you're not getting anywhere because you're, because you have a saddle filled with books. So like, get rid of your books and you mm. climb the mountain, <laughs> which is not to say that sometimes, sometimes the books for, for someone else, it may be the case that the books, you know, they're putting one on top of the other and they're climbing on top of them and they're getting somewhere and they're, they're not being held down by them. But 
For sure. The, the idea, that idea of like hanging on to what's really real about the journey and about the search uh, is so hard, but so necessary. And, and there's something really bizarre and, and fascinating and disturbing in the human mechanism where we so easily lose sight of the real objective um, and get, get caught up in, in trappings and externalities. And um, yeah, but I, I fully, I fully agree with you that that message is, is so true. Is that what God is to you living in accordance to God's law is just kind of being selfless and just seeing others as yourself? Is that, put it simply, is that what it is to you? Yeah. So, so I I think, I think the notion of a separate self, the notion of the ego, which means that there's me, which is different, which is independent and other uh, and disconnected from the things around me. I think that is like the fundamental illusion. Um, And what that says is it says that, it denies the unity and, and infinity of the divine. Because if, if I really believe in a divine unity, which is infinite, then there is no way that I can be separate from that or from you or from the stranger. So I, I do think that, that, that God is the term that we use to describe this, this infinite unified reality. Um, and it's, it's specific, it's precisely our perception of, of me being something other than that, something separate than that, that, that holds me back from experiencing that. And that, and that creates all kinds of really crazy situations, like things like fear and anger and anxiety and guilt and jealousy, like those all, all emerge from that, from that, from that lie of, of a separate self from, from the lie of ego. Um, and getting in touch with the divine means allowing that to die. That's like the, the necessity to, to, to kill the ego is like the oldest myth in, in all of human history, right? Mm. To slay the dragon to, uh, in, in Islam, we call it fana. When you allow the self to be annihilated in Kabbalah, we call it bitul in Christianity. It's called crucifixion or whatever the term in where, where we allow the self to be extinguished in, in, in Buddhism, Nirvana. And then we can just experience reality as it is without that illusion. Um, and that's, that's the experience of the divine. And I, and I think, I think that experience is not one which is foreign to us. I think in moments of, of love and ecstasy and rapture, and and aesthetic you know beauty we 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 lose ourselves right that's 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 the term we use and the the reason we use that term is because we literally lose that sense of self which is other than whatever we're engaging with and we become one with that thing and that's and the bliss in those moments the bliss in love the bliss in in music the bliss in dance the bliss in 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 war in sports in you know in all different where, where the self is lost in sex in 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 psychedelics is is when we're let go of that illusion and allows us to be immersed in the totality of reality. And that, and that reality is fundamentally blissful. And, yeah. and that's what, that's the core teaching, right? It's, it's, yeah. um, I, and I think, I think that's a treat. I think, I think these teachings are so, are so ubiquitous. I mean, you could literally say that same, that same paragraph, I, you could translate that with entirely into, into Muslim words, entirely into Jewish words, entirely into Hindu words, entirely into, um, and, and with this, the same exact messages, it's just so, and it's so real. It's so, it's so, it's so evident. Yeah. Like our, our true being, our true essence is just peace. It actually is like it, or intrinsically the true essence of the universe is just this, this kind, loving peace. And yeah, it's something that we've lost, but I think it's, it's almost like we need to, it's like, you know, getting back to what we talked about, it's like we needed to, cause God got a little bored. We need, <laughs> we need this separation because if we were always, if we always knew that we were all the same thing all the time, then there wouldn't be the, there wouldn't be um, the phenomena of love. 
because in order for me to love you or somebody else, you need to be, I need to see you as a separate self first. And then through my love, I see you as like a unified self. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think there's a truth to that. And that, and that links back to what we started by saying that there is, there is a necessity, like the illusion of otherness, which is what, which is what is created at the beginning of time, according to mysticism and Jewish mysticism. It's what's, it's what created through the act of sin. So when God, uh, so to speak, contracts God's self to create space for the illusion of other is something which is done on design intentionally. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's, um, I don't know. If, I don't know if this will be entirely relevant, but there's a Jewish philosopher, uh, 20th century Jewish philosopher, who I was very into, um, Martin Buber. He wrote a book called Ein Thou, um, which which most Jews haven't heard of, but it became a popular book in Christian circles, where he spoke about um, the the two different forms of relationships that we construct in our lives. One is the I it, where we where we make the other thing an object, a means to an ends, a, some sort of tool that we can use, and we can do that with. With, with literal objects, what we can do with people, a person can be an I it, right? Mm-hmm. If, I, if I only came to this interview because I thought I could get something out of it, then I'm turning you into an object, into an it. But if I come to encounter you, to experience you, to hear from you, to, to be with you, then you're not an it, you're you. It's an I, it's an I thou. And, um, and Buber says that God is the thing which is eternally thou. God can never be made a means to an end, which means that the true essence of reality is something which is entirely an end in itself, right? There's no, yeah. there's no, there's, there's no, there's no point where, where reality doesn't satisfy its own end purpose. Um, which means that, which means that there, the, the love that's present in every moment of reality is, is, is discoverable and is experienceable. Um, the, the reason, the, re- the reason why, why, sorry, I'm getting distracted. The reason that's why fine. I brought up here <laughs> Good. The reason why I brought him up is because Buber, Buber begins his thinking in more of a unitive, monistic, mystical thinking. He wrote his PhD on Nicholas of Cusa, and then he he ends up moving more into this what's known late as like his later thinking, which is dialogical, where where the mo- where the encounter of divinity is between the self and the other, between the I and the you. Mm. Um, whereas before he was more like it's, it's all just the I, right? Kind of like the the Hindu idea of like it's, you know, it's the satomasi, like, it's like that, like whatever you encounter is all just you. And Buberu is like, no, there needs to be real space for that to be uh, love. Um, and it's a hard one. It's a hard one because I, I'm so connected to the idea of like oneness and unity. And I want to like respond to him and say like, no, I can love myself and I can love you in the same way that I love myself. I don't need to be other for myself to love me. And I don't need to be other from you to love you. And I don't need to be other from anything else to love it. So part of me is like, is like pushing in the direction of like, to, I, th- I think sometimes when we like, we find, I don't know, I, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone in, in like, in this conversation or in these circles is doing it, but sometimes like we put up a facade of the necessity of otherness to then justify our own ego where if we could embrace love in a way that did not need otherness, then that excuse would be, would be just mitigated. Oh, um, it transcends like the whole ego, the separation unity aspect that just like, if you just, I see what you're saying. If you just recognize that true love, it just goes beyond that needed separation in order to have love. That's pretty powerful, man. Yeah. And I 
I think, yeah, I think there's, I think, I think there's something, um, I think there's something experiential about that. Like, I think like a lot of the talk that we're having now is like very, my people might think it's like very high and lofty and very like beyond and very like, but it's the, but the most, inc- okay. the, the most, <laughs> it, it is, but the most incredible thing I think about mysticism as well for like our contemporary age, which is so scientific and, and empirical is that these ideas are actually empirical and experiential. Like it, it does not take yeah. that much. Mm-hmm. Um, either meditatively or relationally or chemically to actually, to literally experience things that we're talking about. Yeah. The, 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 the uh, and that, and that, and that really blows my mind. The, the, how close these, these ideas are and how, um, how actually experiential and, and empirical they are is something which I think the world is still, is still struggling to, 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 to come to terms with. Yeah. Because these ideas, these ideas are devastating ideas. They're ideas which which destroy the world as we currently know it. Right? The world operates on on the antithesis of what we're talking about, mm. um, and and the the, pa- the power and the and the nearness of these ideas, I think, is terrifying to a lot of the sort of the old world structure, which which needs, which necessitates otherness and distinction and ego and competition and. And and it's very clear that that order is not working. That order is is destroying yeah. us, destroying the planet, destroying like it's like running itself straight into a hole. Um, and the alternative is uh, is I think something which we are trying to to express and to talk about and to and to create with our words. And it's and I think it's I think it's it's there. I think it's 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 not it's not like it's not up there. It's, I think it's so it's so uh, reachable. Yeah, it's like hidden in plain sight. Like we just we, literally, it's, it's in inside of all of us. Just as something. And I think it's just our condition, conditioning that's kind of blocking it. Or I don't know, maybe some people are more destined to find it and others, others aren't in this incarnation. Yeah. But you see, I mean, you must see this in your life. You must see like moments where you yourself, I don't know, I, I would love to know about like how this happened for you, but moments where that became very clear for you that that was the truth and moments in, in like the people around you in their lives where they, where they switch paradigms. And it, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to say that like the second you come to that realization, you become like a saint overnight. Like we always, we slip back into our, into our old ways and into yep. ways of being that are, that are selfish and that are egoic for sure. But um, there's definitely, there's definitely a very, a very definitive transition where it's like, oh, this is whether I'll, what the challenge is now, whether I can live up to it, but yeah. it becomes very clear to us that this is the reality that, that needs to be, you know, aimed for. Yes. It's, it's like, um, yeah, because every day is a new day. So, like, then you have new problems and new drama every day that gets us For sure. lost in the sauce, I like to say. But once you open that door, you know what it's like on the other side of that door, and you never it never really closes. And for me, it was – I just – I meditate every day. I do yoga. I smoke a lot of weed. And I also – I think it was probably because I took a large dose of psilocybin mushrooms. There was this one time I took a large dose and it led me to some kind of, I guess you can say like Christ consciousness. You know what I mean? It was just like this unpouring out of just, I just felt everybody suffering and I felt connected to everybody on earth. And I was like, Oh my God, like I am them. They are me. I started crying like endlessly. Like I've never cried before. I'm just in my bed, literally just in my bed, just like having an amazing, the one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I came to like these crazy conclusions about like what it means to be a human, uh, the human condition. And then I was like, well, I mean, I guess, I guess this just means since everybody's suffering, I just have to love everybody. Then I was like, I can't, I can't just love. What am I going to do? I'm just a dude. Um, And then I came down and then I realized like, well, I just have to live the best way that I can in accordance to how I felt in that moment. 
and, and it's just not even just from that one time doing mushrooms. It was also from like, I'm a very, you know, I, I have a dedicated meditation practice. And like I said, I, I'm huge into yoga. So that definitely aided that and keeps yeah. me, keeps me aligned with yeah. that mission. Um, yes. But yeah, I opened the door. I don't know if it was on that night. There was plenty of other times of high doses of cannabis that allowed me to, to see that light as well. But it's, it's just like, I opened that door and I can't close it. Like no matter how much, it's almost mm. like the, the term ignorance is bliss is, is a yeah. thing. It's kind of, it's like, no matter yeah. what, I can't go back to the, yeah. the separation. Like I always know that when I look in somebody else's eyes, no matter how much of an asshole they might be or might <laughs> feed me, like I know that they're, they're just going through something. They're just lost. They're not any separate from how I am. Like there's nothing that's going to tell me otherwise that I'm separate from you or any other yeah. people. Like there's just, you can't like, there's just something that's over me and inside of me now that I just can't lose. Yeah. That's, that's really epic. I thank you for sharing that. I hope you, I, I want to ask you some questions. You mind if we, if we turn the tables here a little, Yeah, go for it, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I love that. I think that description is so spot on. And I think that that idea of like, of embodying the Christ consciousness is so, is so accurate. And I think that if, if, if you go back to like original, you know, Christian texts, like, the message of Jesus is that everyone has that capacity to be, to be the Christ, to be, to be the Messiah. Um, the kingdom of heaven is within, within each of us. Right. Yep. And they, like the, the Buddhist idea that, that each one of us, uh, the Mahayana idea that each one of us like is capable of being the Bodhisattva. Yep. Like it's not just the, the one Buddha, like we all are. Um, and so that idea I think is, is, is through religions. And I think that that realization that we're not waiting for some, you know, divine redeemer to come down on the clouds. Like we are, we are the messiahs. And, and I think that's the most epic realization. I think that's, what the world needs to start realizing. But what's very fascinating is, and, and um, getting to that experience through psychedelics is, is so epic and, and, and happening a lot today, which is incredible. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Um, but there's something very interesting is that along with your psychedelic experience, you also had some very rigorous practice, meditation, yoga, which is like, you know, mind control, getting in touch with your body and those kind of things. Um, and I'm really curious to know because I have tons of friends who I, I myself have, have not, but tons of my friends who like have done doing psychedelics. Um, and it doesn't always like make them better people talking about like that litmus test of like, does yeah. this make you a kinder, better, more godly, more Christ-like person? Mm-hmm. Um, and my sense is, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this from the inside. My sense is it's that there's something about the, the work that needs to be put in to, to get there. It's not just, just having the experience is not enough. There also needs to be the training. There needs to be the, the effort. There needs to be the, there's, there's an old Jewish expression that, that if someone says they like got the, they got the gold without putting in any effort, it's not true gold. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, yogati, sorry, lo yogati matati altam. And if someone says that I didn't, I didn't put in the effort and they succeeded, they're not to be believed. So I'm curious to know for, like how, where where like what that means to you like did you did you feel like you were preparing yourself for an experience did you have an experience and then try to find ways to harness it have you seen other of your friends who have been more successful less successful in 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 sort of harnessing those those you know divine experiences yeah i've come to that conclusion as well because i've talked to many people that have had these experiences and they don't seem to it doesn't seem to touch them as it as it touched me and I think it is, it's something like, you know, I think Terrence McKenna said it, that uh, psychedelics don't work on stupid people, but it's not necessarily stupid people. I think it was just a bad way to say it. I think it's just that <laughs> psychedelics don't really work in how they, I don't know if you want to say should work, but how they can work mm. on, on 
on others, on most people, because I think there is like something you have to, in a, so I started meditating in yoga regularly before I got into mushrooms. And it was almost like my unconscious was training me for that experience because I, uh, meditation to me was something special and I knew I was deep reaching upon something deeper than I could ever imagine. And so was yoga, like with the whole idea of cleansing chakras and it was ultimately just making me feel good and making me a, a calmer person all, you know, just all together. And I don't know what it did, you know, bio physio, physiologically, what it really did to me. Uh, but I think it did in a way prepare me to, to be able to handle psilocybin because I see psychedelics as a tool and if you don't use the tool correctly, it's not, you're not going to, it's nothing's going to happen. It's just like a hammer. Like you could build a house with a hammer and a few other tools, but if you don't know how to build the house, then you're just going to have the tool and you're yeah. not going to really, you can destroy things too with the hammer. And yeah. it's the same thing with psychedelics as well. So I think it's, yeah, I think it, it, you almost need like a training regimen to know how yeah. to incorporate these and work these into your life. Because if you do, and if you can use them effectively, they can make, it's almost like having the limitless pill and they can make you just see, well, first of all, microdosing, that's a whole nother story. They can give you like creative uh, inspiration that you've never felt before, but then you can have the, the higher doses where you could literally feel like you are Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> on earth which is that is also a dangerous idea to have too so that's why you need to have that like grounding aspect of the meditation yeah. and the yoga and, and that whole yeah it's a whole process like i see i see these medicines i see them as medicines obviously mm -hmm. uh, like the cannabis and and um and mushrooms i just see them as extensions of my yoga practice essentially they're just yogic medicines in a way mm -hmm. and they have to be incorporated in yeah. the right way like like yeah. psychedelics are taken off like crazy like now and so is cannabis sure. but the people aren't using them i mean people can use them for however they want to use them like i'm not going to say anything you know i'm not mm -hmm. going to tell anybody how they can use it but if to a certain person it can change it can change the world you know because yeah. um who was it that there was somebody that the guy that came up with like the dna structure he found he he was on lsd when he came up with the inspiration for the, the double helix. I don't remember the mm -hmm. guy's name, but there's plenty of other examples where these great minds just needed that quick, like there was something like there was just a catalyst to change because they already had the basis of being that, like having that mindset, but they just needed something, like something to show them like a different light, like to open that door, like I said. And then from there, they act accordingly to from how they learned. But most people just yeah. don't even have that basis in the beginning. Yeah. 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 Well, you, what's I, your experience? Have you experienced any of that? Um, I, I've, I have not experienced, um, anything chemically. Um, um, I, I kind of, be, I've kind of been like intentionally voluntarily holding off from that experience. Um, I don't think you maybe, need to honestly, to be honest, man, like you seem to already, cause it's, you already seem to have that sense. Like if, what what had to bring me to that sense was these chemicals and showed me a different light. But if we can have this conversation with each other, then you might get something out of it. You'll probably feel amazing and have these crazy feelings and just feel just all this love, but getting something out of it, I don't know, like, and you're already acting according to the, you know, the way, like, you know, from what the messages that you're, you're trying to spread it, it, to me, it seems like you're, I, I'm not discouraging you from doing. I think everybody should experience what a psychedelic experience is at least once in their lifetime, especially if you're like a sane individual. 
but I, to me, it seems like you already are on that path, you know? So yeah, like, I, would, I wouldn't rush into it if I were you either, like just whenever it's right for you. I, I, that's really interesting. I, I really appreciate that perspective. Like most of my friends who, who've like done psychedelics, they become like totally like, you know, evangelical about it. And they're like, all oh, trying to get me to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate like that, that take. Um, yeah. Are your I, friends I, though, are they, sorry to interrupt. Are they like no, no, no. living in according to the way, or are they just like, are they just lost in like, you got to like see the colors, man. And right, 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 emotions. right, right. Like, do, but like do, it, my, opinion on these things is it's what you do with them yeah, yeah, what you yeah. get from them to act from them yeah i i i actually want to ask you something there's like mm-hmm. i i want to know like in in sort of the more psychedelic world which i which i'm sure as well like has a huge online you know community and presence as well as everything does today are there people who are like standing up as like thought leaders who are like trying to take it from just being like a the party tripped out, you know, ecstatic experience to be something meaningful and mystical. Other people who are trying to like tell people, Hey guys, put in the work, find like the, the Dharma, find the duty that, that it demands. Like, is, is that, is that a conversation which is happening? That's the people I'm trying to find, to be honest with you. <laughs> I have, I've had a few people that, um, there was one other guy, his name's Adeptus Psychonautica that I've had on a few episodes ago. And he has, he recognizes that we had a whole uh, over hour long conversation about that. It's not really about, you know, the, it's not really about getting high. It's about what you do with getting high essentially. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I don't think there's, there is a a vast majority of popularity coming to these things, but there's not that I've found a lot of thought leaders, like you said, uh, that are expressing Mm. that. I mean, Mm. it really comes down to, there's not really leaders. It's just people sharing their anecdotal accounts of how they've really uh, like, you know, you ever heard of trip reports, like people go through that. That's, sure. that's the, that's the big thing about it. But I don't think there's really not a lot of people like the, I never really thought of that. There's not a lot of people that are speaking on how useful these things can right. be creative and how, and how to harness them. Right. Can I, yeah. can I recommend, can I recommend a guest uh, yeah, for you definitely. to reach out and have on? Mm-hmm. Um, there's this guy, Bill Richards, William Richards, he wrote a book called Sacred Knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like one of the main actual scientists. He's one of the scientists that, that when psychedelics were allowed to be studied again, by, oh. I think it was Stanford down there, started experimenting again. He, him and, and I forget the other guy's name, were like the lead scientists on the case. And this guy is super like, like understands this point and is super like about it and about like taking these things from just like party experiences and actually making them something which is really um, like meaningful and therapeutic and healing for the world and loving. Um, he, he, there's an, there's an incredible, his book is fantastic. He also gave an incredible lecture and Q and a, which is on YouTube. I'll send you a link. Um, and he seems like the type of guy that if you dropped him an email, he would come on. Um, and I think it's, I think it's conversations like that and voices like that. I, my, the way, I, where I see my work is, is, is more, is more from, from two different angles. It's, it's less in, I, I, I engage with the psychedelic community only by proxy because we're talking about related things, but I, I haven't, I don't really address psychedelics directly because I don't have experience and I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a scientist either, but I'm, I'm, I want to, I think that psychedelics is one Avenue. And I think that there are other avenues. One of them is, is religion, which has been like the, the typical, you know, home of mysticism throughout the ages. And the other is philosophy. I think that mysticism and philosophy have a rich relationship so i'm trying to kind of attack it from from those two sides and and bring people through those doors but i think he might be a great great really great guest to talk about how we can begin to bring people 
in through their through the chemical dough. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And not everybody is capable of honestly coming through that. It's just you have to have that mindset. But there there are people out there that if if they know how to use these as tools, they can we can create a better world than we can ever imagine. And I highly encourage you, man, to, you know, no rush on it, but you if, definitely want to experience it before you die because it's just like, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a feeling and an experience that you cannot put words on. Um, I see them as like religious sacraments in a way. Like I think For sometimes sure. they, they were used in, in old style rituals where they were given these things and people were given and having these visions of God. Um, but I don't think your message is really going to change too, too much if you did do it. Uh, I mean, you know, you're already on the, the God and unity and, and loving path. I just think um, it's just something that your consciousness probably might want to experience in this right. in this incarnation right. man i think it yeah. would uh, i think you would definitely enjoy it and don't be scared it's definitely not nothing to be scared of because you like if you're already in touch with that vibe it's only gonna create a better experience for you if you know what i mean like it, there's nothing yeah. for you to resist because a lot of people have negative experiences on these because, psychedelics because they resist sure, whatever's yeah, coming up and they, they just can't handle it but yeah. i mean if you're already on that vibe like it's just going to be like this amazing four to six hour experience that who knows it may change your life it might not but either way it's just something that i think you should experience yeah i think i think when i think when the time is right like it will it will make itself it will make itself happen in my life yeah um my what what i'm what, what i'm kind of thinking about and, and concerned with is is about really there there's I, I see kind of i see mysticism divided into three categories if we're going to try and make sense of it there's like experience which is where these things fall under then there's theory which is like theology metaphysics history mythology like all of that mm. and then there's the practice which is both the the ritual practice which like facilitates the experience and there's the ethical practice about like how do we live our lives knowing all that um and I, I think I think that there's a direct continuity between all those three, right? So experience leads to theory, which leads to practice, which leads back to experience. It's it's a loop which which continues. Um, and part of part of part of part of my concern um, with with some like proponents of the psychedelic world is that it kind of it ends uh, either in ex when when any of these three fields become isolated when they become like disintegrated from from the rest of the three if people are just having experiences and it's not leading them to think differently or to act differently or if people are just thinking you know philosophically but they're not they're not they're not doing differently then or people people are just like doing practice but it's not leading them to 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 any you know to any kind of real grounded ideas or 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 experiences then then that's a problem and and so i think th there's something um I'm not. I'm definitely not opposed to the experience, um, and and I'm definitely gonna go for it one day. God willing, when the time is right. But there's there's something um, like something indulgent about it, right? There's something like maybe a bit hedonistic about it, which I'm not against hedonism. Like people, I think people, I think pleasure is great. I think people should enjoy themselves. But my primary concern is like, how do we how do we bring the world to to a better, more loving, kinder place? Um, and what are the what are the ideas that need to be articulated? Um, and, and presented and argued forth so that we can start living in accordance with those things. So that's, my, so that's just maybe where like, um, my focus is, 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 is a bit different than, than the experiential side. Um, so are you concerned to just get lost in the experience? Um, 
I'm, I'm not, I'm not so much concerned about like losing my mind or getting lost or like, uh, or having like a, like an endless, like an infinite trip. I, th- I think, I think that it may, I think that there's a possibility where there's, there's like a deep, I mean, I've read like hundreds of accounts of the experience. I think there's a sense where there's like a deep bliss and, and ecstasy and there may be because the world is like, seems at times so, so dark and so broken and so hurting that we may just want to escape into our personal private experiences of bliss. And there's something about the, the messianic calling, the calling of the Bodhisattva uh, or in Jewish mysticism, there's the idea of the Tzodrasilt's Messiah, the Messiah who's crushed, who's someone who knows how good things could be, how, how beautiful life could be, but is fully present in a world where it's not like that. Um, and I think if, if we, if people just, I think there's, there is a possibility of, of it, of an escapism, if we escape into our own private nirvanas, right? So the Bodhisattva takes a vow not to cross the river into nirvana until everyone is ready to cross the river with him, right? And I think I think that there is perhaps a danger if like the community that's about enlightenment and about like evolving consciousness and bringing messianic paradigms to the world just escapes themselves into that messianic reality, they'll be there and they'll live like happy, loving lives on their own you know, hippie communes and burning mans, but the rest of the world is going to be stuck in, in old paradigms. Mm. Um, and I think there's, I think there's, there's maybe a need to, uh, to like, to, to, to leave paradise and to, to go and try and, and, and help others find a way there. I don't know. Like this is, yeah. oh, so this is just like thinking off the cuff. I don't know. Yeah. I know what you mean. I definitely hundred percent know what you mean. I don't think you have to be concerned about that though. I think it would only, make your work even more substantial or might not even have any uh, effect on you to be honest <laughs> but because you like i said you already are on that vibe and it's not going to take away from anything though it's not like you're going to become a hippie if you decided <laughs> to do mushrooms for the first time it, it really wouldn't do but just and the thing about that too is like a lot of people put up their experiences but it's only going to be your own experience like there's you can read thousands of accounts of what how people felt on it but sure. at the end of the day, words only go so far sure. and how it is. And it's just a felt experience. It's just something 100%. that you really like as much as we're talking about it right now, there's nothing that can make you feel like this is how I felt. Right. I felt that that moment that I had on mushrooms was my entire life was leading up to that. So I could mm-hmm. experience what that was almost like a catalyst. And then it was like an awakening. Like I changed my life down a different direction. Very peculiar. Hmm. Very, very peculiar but like i said not everybody needs it man um do it when when the time's right because if if the vibe is not right if if the energy isn't right and how you feel and what you're taking it's not going to be an experience so just whenever there's just like this certain yearning that you that you may feel that i feel at least that when i need to do this and it's kind of like an aspect of change when i feel that i need hmm. the change in my being hmm. like i need some kind of like i said catalyst because that's kind of how i see them as mm-hmm. if i need some kind of like like I need to see something differently or I need to align myself differently. That's I, I don't even trip anymore. Actually. I don't even take mass amounts. I think it's not something that you need to do all the time. And if you're doing it all the time, then you're obviously looking for something that you're not going to find in, in mushrooms. Like I right. think it's just, um, you know, I you do it once or twice. And if you need to do it, uh, more i guess i mean i don't know it's hard for me to explain because everybody's different man everybody is different but for For me i only needed to do it probably once twice three times and then i got the message and i hung up the phone i got the phone yeah now i just 
kind of uh, microdose, which if you know anything about microdosing, it doesn't affect really, it, like you're still in this world. It's like almost like having a cup of coffee, like a philosophical cup of coffee in a way. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a, just a, like a pick me up. It's, it's not going to affect your thought right. process. Right. You're not going to start seeing portals to another dimension. It just kind of right. helps with the creativity. It's, um, it, that's what I would actually recommend to you. If you want to just like dip your toes into what these substances are, just, just take like a little bit, whatever substance is. I don't know. Uh, I stick to organic stuff, you know, uh, nice. anything that's from, up from the planet of, of the earth. I think yeah, that's how it was meant to be. Nice. But yeah, just take like a little bit. Um, and then you'll start to feel how it feels and be like, Oh wait, this isn't as big of a deal as people think. And then you can always up the dose, you know, you can't right, take you can any modulate it. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm curious to know, besides for like your own personal life and practice, um, I, I'm not really that much aware of, of your project. I'm curious. I'm, I'm really curious to know about this with people. Um, like now that you've come to these like discoveries and, and, and ways of living, I would, I, I would love if you would like give me your elevator pitch of, of how you're trying to like manifest those things and bring these things out to like, what's, what's your project all about? Um, actually I had somebody ask me this the other night too. And she's actually, <laughs> a, she's a, um, she's a, a Buddhist nun. That's been uh, a, a nun. She's been living in a monastery for 11 years. So she's going to be on the project in a, I don't know, a few weeks, but my, what I'm, it was a very, it was, it was an answer that I had to really think about because no, no one's really asked me that. So let me try internalize it real quick i see my work as connecting similar to yours man it's like connecting all of these different belief systems from all over the world from all different walks of life men women whatever we're all human beings so whatever we look like or where we're from or how we sound i, I see my job as connecting all of these people to create one story to show people that no matter how differently we live our lives, we're all encompassing, encompassing the, this perspective that I call the conscious perspective. And no matter how you reach that, <clears throat> no matter how you reach that perspective, that's up to you. But I can recognize when somebody has that perspective, it doesn't matter what words they use to describe it. It's like, it's the thing that they're describing. It's just, it's, it's that love and unity that we talk about. And if you can speak about that and have that message and that energy and that transmission, I want to bring you on to the show and have a conversation with you so you can elaborate more on that idea. And then if people follow me, which there are some people out there, I'm not, you know, I'm not enormously famous yet, but there, if you follow me, there are, if there are, you'll see that I have just a different walks of life, but we're all touching upon the same concept. And I just want to bring to light that concept of just, it, we're all human beings. We're all one man, you know, like, I don't want to go too hippie-ish on this, but that's what I'm trying to show. I don't want to just interview people that have done mushrooms. That's it. And just psychedelics. Like, no, there's more, there's more to it than that. I want to interview people like you, who's a rabbi in Israel that I never could think that I could mm -hmm. speak of uh if it wasn't 2020 if this was like 20 30 years ago like we would never be having this conversation yeah. so i'm taking advantage of the technology that i have in my life the, the skills that i have gathered in my life and my my um um i guess you could say my philosophy on life and trying to create this project to just ultimately show people that we're all the same and it's it's through just everybody's own story. Like I have, I have, I have a, 
I've had an interest with religion my whole life, like just different philosophies, but I've never been into like so much in one really. Like I've just had different practices and I see the truth in all of them. Like that's been my whole life. Ever since like I was like, I can remember that I would be on the internet. I'd be just looking up all the religions and seeing how they relate. So this is just an extension of that is just speaking to people like you that have read more than I could probably ever imagine. And that are really, really intense into this, um, you know, this one facet of living, this one way of living, even though you're not, I'm just saying that like, you know, you have a lot more knowledge in one aspect than uh, most people would. And speaking to people like you and showing that it doesn't matter. We're all pointing in the same direction. It doesn't, it's, it's all the human experience. And from there, I don't know what happens with the world. I'm just, I'm just trying to create that unity. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really, I, re- I really get what you're saying. And I really, I think, I think two things that you said really resonated with me. One is that we find like our own, like personal talents and capabilities and strengths and find ways to put those in service of love and unity and humanity. Mm-hmm. And also the technologies that we're given, right? We, so we, we're privileged to live in a day and age where we have electricity, we have internet, we have computers, we have all these things, we have microphones. Um, and instead of taking those things and using them as tools of, you know, just simply um, self-fulfilling pleasure and selfish ends, and instead of t- taking those as means to try and create a more loving reality. I think, I think those are two really cool ideas. And I think that the, I think that the fact that you're doing it via conversation um, is really cool as well. Cause I think that conversation is really like where you have a meeting of minds and where you have a capacity to, like we're talking about the, the idea of like the Torah, which has to be verbal where, where you have two souls that can come and, and really like have a harmony and a kind yeah. and, um, and, What's that called in, in singing when people do two, two different notes? Harmony, that's a harmony. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. um, where, where, where you have a conversation where, where we, can, we can harmonize off one another and we can, we can, we can also like bounce off each other's strengths and skills and, and move things forward and, and take and, uh, and really elevate and elevate consciousness together. I think, I think there's something about that. There, yeah, there is. There's something psychedelic about a conversation, a simple conversation that somebody can have, because I'm, I'm actually a huge podcast fan myself. Like I listen to so many podcasts. So, and I, as, I, as I was listening to them, um, I was like, wait a second, I can just make my own. Like who says I can't just have <laughs> a phone and do this. But I thought of like, I'm like, nobody's, I wanted to fill a niche that nobody is, seems to be really doing. And that's exploring spirituality but not just spirituality in one aspect. Cause there's plenty of other podcasts that explore like yogic or Judaistic uh, philosophy or just any, you know, insert uh, belief system here podcast. But I was like, well, nobody is seems to be really exploring the whole, like everything, like an entire, like, and I don't just want to make it about like that too. I also want to make it fun and, you know, sometimes a little funny and just have a good time with the person and kind of lighthearted, but it's a whole thing that I'm still learning as I do it. You know, this is still a new nice. project for me. I just started a few months ago, but it's, it's been the, the whole basis of it is this. I realize that I am not a religious scholar. I am just some dumb. I'm not dumb. Well, I mean, I'm just some guy that lives in America that is just curious about things. And I like to read and I like to talk to people. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to do that, 
and have these conversations that I genuinely want to have with you and all these other people, I might as well film it. And then as yeah. I'm learning and as yeah. I gather this knowledge for myself, other people can follow me along. That's super and that's fun. really the, that's the basis of it. I, cause I was, um, I, I'm in yoga training right now, which I actually have to go to in a few minutes. So we're have to wrap this up. <laughs> Sorry, man. I can't. No so, so I, quick story is, um, I was in yoga training, which was over zoom with one of my teachers who's been, he's like, he's complete 100% yogi. And I was just, I know and it was just like this. It was like a classroom aspect and there was other people in there, but I noticed I was asking him more questions than most people. Cause I was just genuinely curious. And that's when it dawned on me. I was like, wait a second, I can just do this. Like, I don't need to be in this, like this rigid uh, program of studying yoga. Like I can literally just make my own program and let my own curiosity lead the way. So that's what I'm doing. Cause I don't, I don't know. I'm ignorant. Like I'll admit that I'm just some ignorant white guy. Like I don't really know much. So I'm, I'm using that and using my own, um, I don't know if you want to say folly. It's not really a folly. It's just how I am. Like I using my own just yearning for knowledge to, to lead the way in this project. And so far it's been a lot, uh, greater than I could have ever imagined. And mm, that's thanks nice. to people like you coming on here, man. I really appreciate that. This amazing conversation that we had. Total this pleasure, man. Yeah. This was awesome. I, I feel sorry. the same way. I know. I, I, I feel the same way. I feel like I, I, I do like more, myself is more like presentation. I'm like pretending to like know things, but I really know nothing. <laughs> like I know, <laughs> I know nothing. And the very fact that I'm opening my mouth to like to say anything is total folly. It's like total stupidity. Um, but there's a certain, like, you just embrace that. You just like get into Like you just dive into the character and you, and you go and you, and you ride with it. Um, and people, and people, um, people, people appreciate it. I'm sure you, I'm sure you like, you've seen how much people dig what you're putting out and how much, like how much goodness and how much just like kindness and, and yeah, it's like, uh, I, I really encourage more people to, to get up and, and take these conversations and make them live. You know, all we hear on the news is like, it's like bad things instead like have people just get up and do kind things and, and everyone can do it people can do it through art and music and and poetry and 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 building and like there's a million ways that like neither like i can't do any of those things and there are things you can do that like i like everyone has their own skills and just finding finding a way to take our own skills and and really catalyzing them to like to turn them into weapons of, of love and peace yeah um is 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 wild yep uh, honestly man could have said it better myself and that's how we create a better world. It's just the little things that we do that whatever we're good at um, and those little things create, they all add up to For create sure. the bigger and better world that hopefully we're moving toward. Yeah, I feel it, bro. And I feel it too. So with that, thank you so much. Uh, Zevi, absolute pleasure. Je Zevi Slav Slavin, is that how you say your name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slavin, you got it. Zevi Slavin, thank you so very much for coming on this i, I would Total love to pleasure. do this again uh you're a cool guy i like your vibe man thanks man same yeah uh, hit me up i'll be happy to sounds good man yeah and um send me um you said you were gonna like send me some text so like whatever you want to send over that yeah yeah, awesome. yeah i'm gonna send you i'm gonna send you some drill stuff i'm gonna send you that uh the guy the sacred knowledge awesome, and yeah and if anytime in the future if you have any like specific questions or any specific things you want to talk about um or just in general just to 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 kick to kick back i'm happy to <laughs> happy to hang i appreciate it you i appreciate it man uh keep fighting the good fight uh i gotta get going though like i said so you need a pleasure peace out much See love ya.